Testing, testing, one, two, three. Chardcast. An audio portrait of an amazing town. Listen to the people of Chard. Talk about this special place. The one and only Chard. Like and subscribe. To never miss a fantastic episode of Chardcast. <laughs> Chardcast. <laughs> Hello, I'm here at the Guild Hall in Chard. As part of a series of events celebrating Heritage Open Days, volunteers from Chard Museum are running tours of the Guild Hall. Heritage Open Days is a nationwide community-led festival of history and culture involving thousands of local volunteers and organisations. Every year it brings people together to celebrate their heritage, community and history. Let's take a deeper look into the wonderful Guildhall at the heart of our town. Um, it was designed by a local architect called Richard Carver of Taunton. It projects into the main street with a two-storey portico. Both storeys have coupled Tuscan columns. The building was originally incorporated a town hall, a market house and a butchery and cost over £3,000 to build so it was a lot smaller than it actually is now. Uh, the clock was installed to celebrate the ascension of Queen Victoria to the throne in 1837. It's a square clock tower with a circular wooden lantern faces on four sides. It has a dome and a weather vane. Originally in 1842 George Whedon of Crimchard he presented the town with two cannons that were outside. Um, unfortunately, they were slightly dangerous. They, didn't, they had to use very small charges and things to actually use them. Um, the clock itself is a three-train, eight-day clock. Um, it's only wound once a week. It keeps going for that long. It was once lit by gas. The frame of the charred clock um, is constructed with a back and front frame and it's been constructed by four cast iron and four wrought iron pillars. The diameters of the clock face are four foot, and the bell hammers are operated by pull-down wires. Uh, the bells were recast at Whitechapel in 1974, and the hammers were replaced at the same time. We also have two very brave men who came from Chard who won the Victoria Cross. The first was Frederick Elton, who was born at White's Taunton in 1832. He enlisted in the army in 1849 at the age of 16, was present throughout the Crimean War. Um, he was awarded one of the earliest VCs, aged 22, in 1857 for acts of gallantry on three separate occasions in March, June and August in 1855. In March, he volunteered to lead a small party of men to drive off the Russians who were trying to destroy new detached works. In June, he was one of the first to leave the trenches and into attack. And in August, he was commanded a working party digging advanced trenches. When they came under heavy fire, when his men hesitated, he encouraged them by going into the open and picking up a, um, a pick and a shovel. He retired, Lieutenant yes. Colonel, and is buried at um, White's Taunton. Yes, there's a nice memorial in the churchyard mm. there at St Andrews. Uh, the other one is Samuel Vickery. He was born in Wombrook in 1873. He was awarded the Victoria Cross in 1897 for his bravery during the attack in the Dangai Heights in India. 
when he ran down a mountain slope to rescue a wounded soldier. Vickery was again in action during the Boer War, where he made a daring escape after capture, and he rejoined his unit. After retirement, Vickery, as a regular reservist, was called on again to fight as a sergeant during World War I. Hello, I'm with artist Jenny Mellings at the Guild Hall in Chard, and we're here today as part of a number of events going on in the town to celebrate Heritage Open Days, and that's why you can hear the slight buzz of visitors to the Guild Hall in the background. Jenny is an artist who worked with the community of Chard on the Banners of Chard project, managed by Somerset Artworks. 38 workshops took place between July 2021 and March 2022, focusing on community, well-being, nature, the town centre, local heritage, food, culture, diversity, geography and industry. The journey towards the creation of these banners was as important as the production of the final pieces. The charred skyline runs across all five banners to link them, with different elements of charred imagery, heritage, culture and stories in the foreground. The project was part of Culturally Charred, the Chard High Street Heritage Action Zone Cultural Programme, funded by Historic England, Arts Council England and the National Heritage Memorial Fund. Jenny, tell me about your early experiences of facilitating this project with the community. Well, I was approached by Somerset Artworks to put in a few ideas for the making of these banners sometime, I think it was 2021. It, was, it felt like a really exciting thing to do actually because we were just coming out of covid but we didn't nobody really knew whether we would be going back into you know the the lockdown situation again so it was all very tentative at the beginning and a bit you know social distancing had to continue Um, but at the same time it was a really nice felt like a really nice way of bringing community together again after you know that very dark time the first workshops that were planned were to take place on farms, um, community farms in the surrounding area, uh, Magdalen Farm and Ark Farm. And the idea there was to involve produce because I think one of the important criteria to be included in the banners at the start was local produce. I think the first workshop we had was the family group at Ark Farm. To go there, spend a day at harvest time drawing produce, drawing apples, seeing the animals and drawing them and and also trying out different processes that we might be using in the work like cyanotype and various kinds of printing and using earth earth pigments for drawing and painting um, which eventually found their way in somewhere or other into into the final images. So it was sort of doing these initial workshops that set me making a sort of rough plan for each of the five banners. Once that was done, I did some sketches and then moved on to work with other groups. Uh, Manacourt School, we did the same kind of trip to uh, Magdalen Farm and they had a wonderful time there. They drew loads and loads of apples and pigs and, you know, had a go at juicing apples and lots of things like that. So we're sitting here in front of the banners right now. Can you paint for the listeners an audio picture of what can be seen in these banners? Well, we'll start with number one, and that was always sort of number one in my mind, really. I had a particular colour scheme, which was a sort of gold round the edge with a, a, a pale turquoisey kind of blue 
wintry sky. And that was because those colours were in one of the original child banners, which have been in the museum for a long time, um, made over 100 years ago, I think. It doesn't have any buildings, it just really reflects the skyline. The skyline was quite key in all of the banners. So the hills, well, they're a little bit like child skyline, maybe a bit steeper than that, but um, based on the countryside around. So that one's very simple in the, the main picture. And then it seemed like the ideal one to refer to John Stringfellow's flight experiments and what followed. So along the top are embroidered squares of aircraft and from various different eras, including a rocket. And they were embroidered by different people, some volunteers, based on drawings done at a museum workshop. It also includes a badger, uh, which somebody from the watch group drew. Um, We did quite a lot of animal drawing as part of their sessions. And also one lot of wonderful leaf prints which were done by the watch group with Rebecca McPherson, um, an artist who was my... Well, she was assisting with the project, really, and they were absolutely wonderful, and they've they've ended up being included in several of the banners. Okay, now the banners here at the Guildhall are exhibited in a specific order... Tell us about the next banner in the sequence. Um, so then moving on to the second banner, and it has quite a lot of input in that from schools. They did a decorative border. They arranged all of that with paper and card that I painted with earth pigments, and then I took their designs and resized those traced them onto fabric and painted them myself, which was a very laborious process. I think I did it over Christmas because I wasn't seeing anyone because it was still still um, COVID restrictions. So I, I spent lots of that Christmas actually doing some of the painting, also painting their resizing and painting their drawings with fabric printing ink, which were of, you know, cheese and grapes and oysters, things the Romans might have eaten, but things they'd seen at the farm as well. And they all went on a picnic blanket because it, it was sort of partly a rural image. And then included also is, is an image of a horse and cart, which was from a photograph from Child Museum. Um, Holyrood Academy drew doors and windows that appealed to them um, from lots of photographs that I took into the school. And they were to fit under a skyline so the skyline in this one the second one is partly architectural and I actually measured up with a ruler the the skyline on a photograph in one of the streets so there was a a real you know an element of reality to the skyline of course there are multiple skylines and the schools did a lot of embroidery but there was also quite a lot to finish and they were sent out in the end to volunteers. Some of the volunteers were from the school and then other people in Somerset who were very keen on embroidery and who responded to a call-out. I see. Now, banner number three? Ah, now, banner number three, as the central one, it's, it's got the, the main high street, four street, merging into high street, really, and that's dominated by architecture. So there was... It's mostly... The input there is from Holyrood Academy, and again they did, you know, square each. The, a large number of children actually did drawings to begin with, 
And then only a small group came along to, to actually do the embroidery part of it. So I ended up with a large sheet of fabric for each banner, which would form the central image. And onto that, everything else had to be sewn or printed. So that, that was a bit tricky when it came to sewing on lots and lots of squares of, of heavier fabric, which would be the doors and windows that were embroidered. Um, and so I just kind of stuffed the material through the, <laughs> through the um, sewing machine as I, as I sewed around the edges of all these things. Yes, in the middle one, we've, we've got some important personages, historical personages from Chard. Um, we've got John Stringfellow's plane, one of his early planes in the sky, various references to him in some of the windows. Margaret Bonfield, the first female cabinet member from Chard. She's included a couple of times. Um, Nurse Wilkins, who worked with Edith Cavell during World War One, she was also from Chard, and so she appears in the centre of that image with Edith Cavell's dog. The two streams of Chard that run down the main street are also included in that. I noticed they were different colours, different times of day, so on one side, on the right-hand side, it's kind of amber colour. That would be the dark side of the street. And the other side, it's more kind of silvery. And they were printed... Um, on large pieces of, of silk with with a fabric ink, um, as lots of fabric ink was used in in the creation of many of these images, all of which had to be ironed on. So there was an awful lot of ironing involved altogether. And the clock tower again, my my dad did that one. It took a long time to em- embroider that. I sent him a kit, some fabric um, with with the image drawn onto it and some embroidery thread and everything else. And then he sent back the finished product. And that happened with everybody who was, had volunteered from beyond Chard. So I'd make, make a kit, send it out to them, and then they sent me back these lovely embroideries through the post, which were a real treat to receive. Um, very colourful, this is, as well. OK, let's move on to the next banner. Yes, the next banner, number four, and it's the night time, it's a nocturnal one, and that has a, a table that kind of corresponds to the picnic rug. Another, another year group at Manor Court did the table, things on the table, so these are lots of drawings from the farm again. It's got cider, chips, lots of other things that people might have for an evening meal. And it's got the, a skyline from Holyrood Street, and that's, of course, where the carnival takes place every year. So there are, the carnival figures were quite important. And they were, they were drawn and partially embroid, uh, embroidered by some of the watch group members. People took many hours over them, actually, and then brought them back in, which was wonderful, um, including Rebecca McPherson. Um, she, she did one or two of those, those wonderful figures. And some of her leaves are in this one plus a basket of apples drawn by Manacourt children, which had to be repainted onto fabric with fabric ink. And then along the top, we've got some different elements. There are two very different community groups in Chard, the Polish group and the Portuguese group. And they, they both made some contributions as well. And we spent one morning at Survivor's Cafe and... I think some of the staff de- there did 
and embroidery and also contributed drawings and images like the mandolin, the fardo guitar. A lot of red, yellow, orange, quite autumnal colours on a dark blue background for this one. It's beautiful. Tell us about the final banner in the sequence. Right, so number five is a relatively empty one again and there's a little bit of a reference to uh, one thing which a lady mentioned at our first open day, which was that during World War II, particularly American soldiers, I believe, used charred reservoir to, to bathe in during the war. So there's a very faint, sort of almost like ghostly image in that. There's more wildlife. There's a, another embroidery by my mum um, of a, a dragonfly perched on the shore of the reservoir. That's something I saw myself. I went there one afternoon and they kept landing on the shore, these, these wonderful blue dragonflies. So they had to go in. Lots of moths. And at the bottom, actually, there is a reference to railway, because this is where you've got the Roman arches, but actually it's more to do with the railway tunnels, which still exist uh, with that arch shape. And what have you learnt yourself about the history and culture of Chard? I was aware of some of the history of Chard, and you know, especially through having visited the, muse- the wonderful museum in the town, and, but I, it, it's getting to know people, um, seeing how things connect together, looking at the history of the whole place and, and the connection of various individuals to that history um, that has made me see it a little bit differently and have a, a, a tremendous fondness for it, really. And, of course, you know that when you go to any place, really, there's existing culture, and that's what you begin to discover, I think, by doing a project like this. So it is then you know, finding a way and finding how you can tie some of those elements together, uh, and that, but then bringing other things in from elsewhere to refresh, you know, the cultural scene, which I hope is what culturally child is all about, really. I think it is. And, and, that, uh, and that gradually, as the project went on, that actually became, seemed to become the reality, and I think people did get drawn in. And I learned quite a lot more detail about the surrounding areas, um, the history of some of the buildings, maybe some of the unfortunate history of the lace industry, and actually met um, some people whose families had uh, had been involved with that in the past. Um, So that was fascinating. Plus, you know, how, how some of the communities from Portugal and Poland ended up in Chard, and you know, and how they enrich the culture in the town. And then learning a lot more about key historical figures like the Stringfellow family, not just John Stringfellow, but the rest of the family, discovering that one of them lived across the road from me in Crewkern as well was interesting. So that was a, that was a bit of a bonus. And how lively it must have been in the 19th century particularly um, with inventors and politicians and you know nurses and people doing really vital things um but of course the railway was there then and it had three different stations and i can't help feeling that you know it was a, it's a very sad thing for the town that those went because i think that did actually leave it a little bit more cut off what do you think has been the experience of the community and individuals who have participated in the project in this project, school children had the opportunity to 
actually visit places that they might not have gone to before, go to a farm and have an extra reason for, you know, drawing um, things there, trying things, tasting things. And that all somehow, you know, got included in the banners. All those tactile experiences were quite important and they wouldn't really have happened without this project in the same kind of way. It's a good exercise knowing that there was a, a product at the end of it that might last for 100 years or more. It's focusing, isn't it? Focusing on things that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily take in and relate to your own experiences. Thank you so much, Jenny, for talking to us about the Banners of Chard project today. Well, thank you very much. Um, I've lived in Chard now 40 years. I've just had a tour of the Guild Hall as part of the uh, Heritage Week. It's been a fascinating close-up of the, of the hall. I've been into the Guild Hall many times over the years, but um, until your attention is drawn to some of the historic information, the place is absolutely crammed full of it, you just don't notice. So it's been really interesting to have my attention drawn to a lot of the features which are and, and history which are contained within the building, uh, to uh, hear from the mayor himself and the town crier about their roles and the, the history of uh, mayors in charge and to uh, see the uh, the photographs the portraits um, it's been an excellent experience and as I say drawn my attention to a lot that's in the building and which I would not have noticed had I not been on the tour. Chardcast is a project produced by Richard Tomlinson and managed by Chard Museum on behalf of Culturally Chard. It is funded through South Somerset District Council and Historic England. You can listen to Chardcast by visiting www.chardmuseum.co.uk or search for Chard Museum's podcast on your podcast app. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Chardcast. An audio portrait of an amazing town. Listen to the people of Chard. Talk about this special place. The one and only Chard. Like and subscribe to never miss a fantastic episode of... Chardcast! <laughs> oh, that was a really good episode. I really like doing that. I like joining the Chard Museum. That was so good. I know.